that's the shift I see. Back in the day, even though you had migrations and complex cultures, there was always a predominant. And yeah. if there was a, a, a thing that made you different, you had to subvert that, mm. either for your own safety or for your yeah. own prosperity, for you to be able to make it in business, make it socially, make it in your communities, whatever it was, if it made you different, you didn't want to be different. You wanted to be part of the whole. But yeah. now we're starting to recognize that the whole could be so much nicer. It could be a mosaic. It could be so much more beautiful yeah. than the whole that we've imagined in the past. Welcome to Hyphenated, an Americanish podcast. My name is Adela Kochab, and I'm your Syrian Lebanese, Mexican Canadian, Jewish host. Growing up in the US, I always felt like I never fit into one category. And then I realized that in this melting pot of a country, no one really does. So on this show, I'm really excited to be joined by guests from hyphenated backgrounds to talk about their cultures, family histories, and what it really means to be a little bit Americanish. So welcome to Hyphenated. Welcome to Hyphenated, an Americanish podcast. I am your Syrian Lebanese Mexican Jewish host, Adela Kochav. And today I am joined by someone who's equally complicated. Today we have Shama Mishtali, who is a entrepreneur, activist, artist, and much more. And we have her here today. So when I explain where I'm from and people ask me, hey, Adela, where are you from? I usually say, how much time do you have? Because it's always a complicated story. So I'm going to ask you the dreaded question, Shama, where are you from? Or where are you really from? Where are you really from? <laughs> Um, well, thank you for having me, Adela. It's a pleasure to be here. So I always also say the same thing, or I'll try to kind of tweak my answer depending on who's asking and how much time we both have. Um, but to kind of delve into the real story, I grew up in Casablanca, Morocco, um, and I spent the first 17 years of my life there. My mother is from the north of Morocco, from Tangier, um, and my father is from the south, uh, from Essaouira, but grew up in Casablanca. And Casablanca itself is this sort of melting pot of different cultures by virtue of being an economic hub where people go seeking economic opportunity. Um, and so you're obviously like met with a lot of ethnic complexity there. But um, at the same time, our household kind of deepened the complication even more because um, my mother came from a Muslim family from the north with a family tree that goes back to Prophet Muhammad's ancestry yeah. um, and kind of documents all of that. And my father's family, especially my grandfather, um, came from a Jewish family and um, had kind of gone through the typical Jewish migration path uh, for Mizrahi families in Morocco, in which, you know, he went from a village in the Atlas Mountains uh, to eventually move to Casablanca to kind of start a life for himself. And um, when he got there, the French actually sort of changed his last name, adding a T um, to his last name. And that kind of created this confusion and this um, rift in our identity um, and essentially meant that growing up, I always asked these questions around who we are and like, how come our last name was so different and it mm -hmm. clearly wasn't Arab. Um, and at the same time, we were supposed to all identify as Arab and Muslim um, within the changing 
um, sociopolitical dynamics of a post um, colonization, a modern state, modern Moroccan state that was heavily influenced by pan-Arabism and a steady growth in um, Islamization, especially through like new media and like TV channels that were financed uh, by by the Gulf to really push the sense of um, singular Islamic kind of identity. Um, and so I grew up asking a lot of questions about who I am and where I'm from and where is our family uh, coming from and where are our roots. Um, and so, you know, usually when people ask me, I'll say I am, you know, I'm Amazigh, I'm Moroccan. Um, the Amazigh people are the indigenous people of North Africa and they span different Across time, they've spanned different religions um, and different levels of spirituality and different um, communities. And so I feel like it, it, it gives a little bit more space for, for complexity. So I start with saying I'm Amazigh, I'm a woman, I'm Moroccan, uh, but I'm also like American-ish, right? I'm also very... Um, deeply influenced by the United States and the culture of America. And I was born on July 4th, so it's oh. not like I had a choice in that. You're basically an American poster child here. Exactly. Birth of America and the birth of Shama. Exactly. And like extremely rooted by, I would say, the values of America and the values of freedom and liberation and emancipation for all. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I think that... When people ask me that question, there are so many layers that can get peeled off. Um, but again, it just depends on how much time they have. It depends on the time. <laughs> I, I agree. And, you know, one of the things I, I love so much about your story, for everyone who doesn't know Shama here, um, you are both Muslim and Jewish. Your mom is Muslim. Again, you said spanning generations yeah. to Muhammad. And then your dad hid his Judaism from even your mom until you started asking around. So so yeah. how did that come to be? How did you discover your Jewish roots? Yeah, um, so many stories here. Um, so let me just start by reframing a little bit and just kind of giving you a little bit of a story. So if you look into the story of Rambam, Maimonides, mm -hmm. who, grew, who was born in Cordoba and kind of grew up in between Andalusia, Muslim Spain, and Morocco, and then like moved eventually to Cairo. He, by virtue of being in Muslim spaces all of his life, um, he actually had to conceal his Jewish identity a lot. And so one thing that I kind of like to think about and contemplate is how this man who is a giant of Jewish philosophy, in fact, probably and arguably the most important Jewish philosopher um, ever, how he also had to conceal his identity to exist and to thrive. And he also had to code switch when he navigated um, these different communities within the Mediterranean. And it's, it's quite amazing to think about how a man like that could and have had to conceal parts of his identity, to exist and to survive. But it's also interesting because then that also informs your experience. So in many ways, I think that 
my father didn't really do it by choice. There were so many historical and political reasons for which he had started to uh, almost feel shame about mm -hmm. who he is, about the complexity that he carried. Um, and also, I think we are fundamentally rooted by a need for belonging. Mm -hmm. And so if in public spaces, you don't see that your culture and your identity is represented and is given any space or is even tolerated, uh, then you slowly start to shrink those parts of who you are. And I think that's, that's true about my father, but also about um, the larger sort of national identity um, because there was, you know, when, when I was growing up in particular, I think there was more pressure to um, shed all of that pluralism and all of that complexity that totally, I, totally shaped who we are mm -hmm. as Moroccans, as Mediterraneans, and um, more pressure to just kind of say these straightforward answers that don't get you into trouble. Yeah. Um, and so with my father, I think that from a young age, I started um, doing this identity work with him as a way to understand him and to also create some sense of healing for him. Today, like my dad is very openly Jewish, is <laughs> very publicly Jewish. I want to I want to focus on belonging because, you know, we're talking about hyphenated identities. Right. And and yeah. here in the U.S., you can add so many more considering you are also Moroccan. But even in Morocco, you had a hyphenated identity that was different from the identities of, let's say, kids you grew up with yeah. or people around you. So when it comes to belonging, especially, you know, growing up in the public Moroccan school system, when you started exploring these questions of identity, how, how did that change the dynamic between you and your peers or, or even yeah. you and your mom? Yeah. So I, I went through private school up until the end of middle school. And in middle school, I felt, you know, because of those socioeconomic um, differences or privileges, I was able to ask some questions. And I think in middle school, that's when I first started to really explore questions of um, existentialism and who are we and why are we here and where are we going? Um, and definitely became very shaped by existentialists, like French existentialist philosophy, um, and totally um, rooted in the fight or the struggle for absolute freedom, which meant asking a lot of questions in school and kind of going against um, what was being taught systematically. Um, and so that put me in a lot of interesting situations um, from middle school onwards. And then in high school, I transitioned into a public high school, um, which, you know, the curriculum is very much Moroccan, you know, state-sponsored. Um, and so there was really no space for mm -hmm. different narratives around who we are. We had to accept that our identity was just Muslim and Arab, and there was no other way to speak of Moroccan identity. That made me feel completely invisible um, and also angry. And so I started um, protesting in school. I started um, really forcing those conversations to be had in Islamic education classes, which you know I had to take 
was mandatory for 12 years of our education. Um, and also my schedule in high school was really interesting in the sense that I would get out of Islamic education class into um, philosophy class. Mm. And in philosophy class, I would just voice all of my... <laughs> yes, exactly. I would just uh, really unearth mm. all of these deep existential questions and confront um, this uh, pressure that I felt to conform. And I have to tell you the story of when I first came to the U.S. Yes, please. Because, um, because so that, that was my experience going to high school in, in, in Morocco, in Casablanca. But then um, when I was 14 years old, so like right when I was starting high school, I came to the U.S. Um, that summer before high school. And it was at the height of the Obama campaign, actually. And I didn't speak English at the time. But I just, like, found this country where there was just so much ethnic, religious diversity and complexity. And everyone was from somewhere. And you still were able to claim Americanness and some sense of belonging despite where you had come from. And that was like so radical mm -hmm. to me because also in Morocco, we're very much shaped by French politics and um, the concept of laicite, so secularism, um, that meant that religion really stays at home and there's no space for it in public space. And here in the U.S., I noticed that people could visibly be religious, but still be American. And that was really, like, life-changing for me. And uh, plus, I got to celebrate my birthday during July 4th with fireworks. So that was pretty nice. Um, and I just felt, like, for the first time that you can have a lot of um, diversity within you. You can have this complexity that we're speaking about and still have access to... Um, to nation-state belonging yeah. and to a sense of patriotism and to shared values that you have with people who span a whole spectrum of diversity. And just also watching the Obama campaign and how he was able to build bridges because of his diversity, because of his story, because of these multiple spaces that he had navigated growing up was so inspiring for me. And I think that, um, well, I went back to Morocco after that summer with like Obama pins all over my, <laughs> so like imagine this little girl walking around a Moroccan public high school in like middle of nowhere <laughs> in Casablanca with like Obama pins and yes, we can. And like all these inspiring slogans. And people just looking at me like I was an alien. Yeah. <laughs> like, like they had no idea what I was even speaking about. Um, but still, so it really shaped, I think, my experience um, and my understanding of, of, I would say, the wisdom and the impact of pluralism. That sounds like your American-ish moment. Yeah. Moment that you realize that hey, we're all a little bit of something. And yeah. in this melting pot of the U.S., everyone comes from somewhere and everyone has a story and no one's just one thing. And I, I know when you made the decision to go to college in the U.S., 
Yeah. You know, what what drove you to say, this is where I'm going to study in? And what did you study? What brought you to America for college? Yeah. So I applied to a bunch of different schools, uh, most of them very liberal artsy. And I went to Brandeis University on a visit, not knowing anything about school. And I went there with my sister and we get to the campus and we look around and my sister and I are kind of just a little bit shocked. And she turns to me and she goes, wait, they all look like our cousins. <laughs> and it wasn't like our cousins in a metaphorical way. It was like our actual blood cousins. Yeah. Which, by the way, all from my mom's side. Okay. And like all had similar names, like Zach, Zachariah, and like, and we're just like looking at each other and, and thinking, wait, wait a minute. Like, what is happening in this school? Mm. Then we find out that it's a very deeply Jewish school. Yep. Brandeis is a Jewish school. Yeah. And so I started talking to people and just felt such deep belonging for the mm -hmm. first time in my life. And I just, it was like magic. And I, I'm very much someone who like leads with the heart, who like feels everything. I'm a Cancerian, what can I say? And so I felt that sense of beautiful, like warm belonging and interest also from people. You know, when I had visited other schools, and I would say Morocco, no one like really knew <laughs> where I was coming from or anything. There'd, there'd be no follow-up question. Mm. Um, whereas at Brandeis, I think because of the Jewish story and because, you know, if you ever go to Israel, there is a huge Moroccan community, yep. you know, that's over a million people um, in Israel are Moroccan, which you know, both parents come from uh, Moroccan roots, but then there are so many others who at least have one grandparent who's Moroccan. And because it's like such a deep, long sort of history of, of, of cultures and traditions, it tends to be really strong. And so people had some type of exposure to Moroccan culture and Moroccanness. And so there were so many follow-up questions and so much excitement. Um, and so I felt like, the Moorish part of me and the Jewish part of me and that complicated sort of minority story that I carried had some space to exist there that I didn't find in other places. Of course, once I actually went to Brandeis in my first like week or so, I was encountered with like, or I encountered deep Ashkenormativity. Yep. <laughs> And a lot of confusion around who I am or my grandfather's story or like the Amazigh Jewish community. And so essentially, you know, after having dedicated a lot of my time in Morocco to kind of spread consciousness around Mizrahi and Sephardic Jewish history, once I came to Brandeis, I felt the need to do the same. Mm -hmm. Perhaps from a different space. I am a Syrian, Lebanese, Mexican Jew. It always feels like no matter what circle I'm in, I have to explain some part of myself to the people around me. So like you yeah. said, in, in Morocco, you were educating people about Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews. And mm -hmm. then you show up to Brandeis where it's not that they haven't met a Jew before, but they hadn't met the Sephardic and Mizrahi Jew. So yeah. in Morocco, it might have been the Jewish part that was different because they understand Middle Eastern culture. 
but then suddenly you show up to a heavily Ashkenazi Jewish university and you have to explain the other side of it. So it's it, it's always that struggle when it comes to hyphenated identities of yeah. what am I putting forward? What's my salient identity at the moment? And what is it, what what hole is it do I have the, that I have to fill with my explanations to explain really who I am? And I think that that's one thing that, um, if I can pivot a little bit, you do yeah. with your art. So explain to me what your art is and how you started and where it's at today. Yeah. So I started my art as a way to really understand my own identity and the identity of North Africans, um, specifically as a woman and a minority woman. Um, and so I actually started kind of using art to represent intersectionality in the Jewish world without really knowing what intersectionality meant. And so at the time, I started painting these series of women who were Jewish and indigenous to North Africa. And I just called them like the triple minority status women because mm. <laughs> there was like no word that I could just kind of seek and go to. And um, it really told the stories of incredible women who, um, unfortunately, because they were from a minority, were not represented, were not talked about, and yet had like contributed so much to our cultures, to our civilization, and uh, to our communities and to things that we continue to do today. You know, the, the food that we create, the songs that we sing, the customs that we celebrate um, today, and the wisdoms that we carry with us today would not be possible <laughs> without these women's contributions. And so um, I started as a way to really kind of make sense of all of it. And one of my first paintings, which I brought you a print of today, which I'll sign later, um, is a representation of an Amazir Jewish queen who lived in the seventh century and really like fought politically and militarily fought the invasion of the Umayyad Empire, who came to spread Islam, but also to seize more land, um, and was met with the indigenous local population who just wasn't going to give away their land. And so she um, essentially was pushed into battle after both her father and um, her partner um, were killed. And so she militarized entire tribes in the North Africa, Maghreb, like Algeria, Morocco region, and fought for 20 years in battle. And as a woman growing up in like a predominantly Muslim sort of country and society, I didn't really have role models um, to look up to. Mm -hmm role models who were women and who were deeply political and who were protectors and who also were Jewish and, um, and really fought for what felt like moral ideals. And so I, you know, I couldn't have just looked at Hillary Clinton and felt represented mm -hmm. by her story. Um, so when I found Kahina, Queen Kahina's story, um, and that's an interesting, Kahina Kohen. Yeah, exactly. She was, all, she was a deeply spiritual woman who also had the 
uh, incredible foresight and could ha like have these visions and see what was ha going to happen way before it would happen. And so when I found her story, I was just so moved. And I just told myself, other girls have to have access to this. Like they must mm -hmm. know that this woman existed in the seventh century. And that could be the way through which we show them that there's got to be other ways. Like we don't mm -hmm. belong in the kitchen. We belong in the battlefield as well. These stories, they have to be shared more. They have to be told. We need to make like children's books around these women. Like let's get on that. And I know that's something that you've been working on. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that's kind of in the in the backlog, in, in the, backlog. the works that I'm hoping that Moors and Saints um, can can really champion. Um, and we'll get into Moors and Saints and, and, and all of that. So that's actually what I wanted to get into oh, okay. now. Um, so Moors and Saints is your phenomenal jewelry line. And for everyone listening right now, definitely check it out. You can find it on Instagram. You can check out their website. Yeah. It uses Moorish architecture as the inspiration behind all of the jewelry pieces. So yeah. how did Moors and Saints come to be? What what made you want to start it? Yeah, so it was really when Trump was elected, in particular because of all of the anti-immigrant rhetoric and anti-refugee rhetoric, which I felt just kind of goes against all of my values. Um, and I had worked in Malta before at the height of the refugee crisis with refugees from you know, East Africa, from Syria. And um, I met people, I met young kids who were 12 and 11 years old who spoke over 10 languages wow. and who were just incredibly resilient and who were constantly reinventing themselves. And so I just really um, felt that I was at a historical moment and that I needed to do something about that anti-migration rhetoric and to really show the world that it's not a 21st century thing, that people have been migrating. I mean, you've, Adela, you've shared yourself with our audience that you're Syrian, Lebanese, Mexican, now you're in New York. And while it's incredible to kind of amass all of these um, cultures, it's not a new thing. It's been... Yeah happening over and over and especially if you're a minority or if you're a Jewish by virtue of like being kicked out it happens <laughs> um you have had to um acclimate to different cultures to show up to reinvent yourself to reinvent your culture to innovate and actually that's what makes cultures interesting and rich and no culture at all can really evolve and kind of uh, go through progress and become a civilization without diversity. And that's the one thing that um, was so obvious to me through looking at Moorish design and Moorish architecture and studying Andalusian history is that it really became a universal language that documents until today the migration path mm -hmm. of the Sephardic community and of Muslims also and of just human civilization because it shows up over and over again. What's so interesting about Moorish design is that it, like, it shows up at its peak and in, in its most kind of beautiful manifestations 
always at a period of a golden era, of a mm -hmm. golden age. And, and so there's usually this like context of economic prosperity, of social and socioeconomic diversity that ushers in a new chapter in Moorish history and architecture. In fact, even today, like the most kind of inventive, innovative manifestations of Moorish design and architecture are happening in the Gulf, specifically in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And, you know, it totally makes sense. When I was an undergraduate at NYU, I ended up building my own major in Middle Eastern diaspora structures. But mm. before that, I had, um, you know, had a politics major with minors in Middle Eastern studies, Latin American studies, uh, Judaic studies and law and society. And I had all these ideas I wanted to do. And one of them was to study abroad in Spain. Mm. And in my essay, I had to explain why all of my minors would fit into this into this study abroad plan. And yeah. I had to explain in my essay that nowhere else can you study the golden age of Judaism under Muslim rule than in Spain. And, and when really? I was with my family, you know, between the Alhambra and Granada, like Cordoba, like just driving around to these different historic centers and you see the architecture, that's where I felt most connected. And it's yeah. exactly right. It's the golden ages. It's the golden ages. And it's something that people also often don't think about. They don't realize that Spain itself was under Muslim rule and that the Jewish community was thriving there. Not only thriving, but some of our greatest thinkers were thriving there, like we were talking about Rambam before. Yeah. So it, it's funny how to, to someone, especially uh, someone from the U.S. who's never had exposure to Jewish culture, to Muslim culture, or to generally Middle Eastern culture, yeah. they'll never understand quite that. And, and that's what I get when I look at your pieces. When I look at your jewelry pieces, is it, whether it's your Magen David or anything else, it, yeah. it brings that out which totally. I think is so beautiful. Thank you so much. Obviously, you can see my body language, how excited <laughs> I am with you talking about all of this. Because um, I think it's just such a cool, interesting civilization to draw inspiration from. But it also, like, it's such a good um, civilization to, for us, like millennials, hyphenated, third culture kids mm -hmm. to look at, in particular because... In Andalusia, it was very common um, to find people who excelled in different fields. Mm -hmm. So like you, you were saying, I was you know, doing these minors and majors and like trying to kind of come up with something that is an expression of who you are and like deepens who you are. It was it's like not it's not bizarre to find that our ancestors actually mm -hmm. did a bunch of different things yep. and excelled in them and. It is precisely the fact that they could excel in like physics and astronomy and medicine and poetry and the arts that made them such like radical, amazing thinkers that have left such a huge imprint on human civilization and tools for us to um, kind of deepen our consciousness and and create newer cultures for the new generations to come in uh, that they can kind of be inspired by. And so in Andalusia, it's not just like the aesthetics, the beauty, the Jewish and Muslim story, the interfaith dialogue, but it's also like this ability to hold, to like wear multiple hats and mm -hmm. to hold different conflicting things in the same space and to have this like deep cultural fluency around so many different spaces at the same time and to essentially like be allowed 
be allowed to be complex and yeah. complicated um, and let that be your power. These are all things that people want to hear. And I agree. And, and like you said, and I think that this is the most important thing that I think people should take away from this conversation is like you said, complex identities have been around forever. People have been migrating since the dawn yeah. of time. No one has only been one thing. And now especially these third culture kids are starting to come to fruition. We're starting to have our voices. And when I compare, for example, the story of your father's Judaism compared with how you own it today, that's the shift I see. Mm. The shift is that back in the day, even though you had migrations and complex cultures, there was always a predominant. And yeah. if there was a, a, a thing that made you different, you had to subvert that either mm. for your own safety or for your yeah. own prosperity for you to be able to make it in business, make it socially, make it in your communities, whatever it was, if it made you different, you didn't want to be different. You wanted to be part of the whole. But yeah. now we're starting to recognize that the whole could be so much nicer. It could be a mosaic. It could be so much more beautiful yeah. than the whole that we've imagined in the past. So I actually want to bring it back yeah. to you and your traditions. And um, we are going to move to a segment called Spill the Tea. And um, my favorite thing that I always talk about when it comes to being a Syrian, Lebanese, Mexican Jew is superstitions. Because I think that superstitions carry your culture. It, it shows uh, the, yeah. the deepest fears and the deepest anxieties of a culture. And, and what is it that you're trying to change? Um, mm. or, or what is it that has been on your mind as a culture as it's evolved over centuries? So yeah. um, I'm going to ask you. The millennial more. Yeah. What is your favorite superstition of your community? <laughs> oh my God. We are such deeply superstitious people <laughs> that like my brain is like lighting up with so many. Um, so maybe I'll say one that's kind of mainstream and one that's like specific to Passover. Oh, yes. Um, so the mainstream one is if someone like jumps over you, especially if you're a child that's like a no-no. Like no one no. should jump over you because you'll stop growing and like okay. you'll forever be short. <laughs> okay. I haven't jumped over a person, but if I ever do, Careful. I'll make sure not to. No, no. Exactly. And um, the other one, which is really funny, and I like have a lot of um, Ashkenazi friends who like ask me why that's a thing. So during uh, Passover... And um, like during um, the Passover Seder, usually um, there is, <laughs> we would take a plate basically and we like put it over, over someone's head. Okay. Especially like the, the Seder plates or um, during Mimuna. So okay. like once Passover is, over, is done, we'll take the plate and put it over someone's head and like a few times um in mimuna it's it's the plate of mufletas i love mufletas <laughs> yeah. so it's really funny because a lot of people just kind of see this and they're like what is going on but if you look at the the root of the tradition apparently it's like a blessing for freedom it's like may you wow. ever may you be forever like free and liberated which i think is like incredible and amazing and like total representation of the Passover story. But when you see these like crazy little traditions, yeah. when you don't have the full context, you just think, oh my God, these people are just dancing or they're just crazy. So I love how <laughs> your tradition is you take a plate, you pass it around someone's head and that's to, you know, a blessing for freedom. Can yeah. I tell you my Passover yeah. tradition? And this is just my family. This is not all Syrian Jews, but for some reason in my family, we do this thing where... Um, 
after we finish the seder, you know how we have like a lamb shank to represent Korban Pesach. Yeah. So we take the lime, lamb shank, and if you're an unmarried woman, you have to lick the bone under the <laughs> stairs, and then you'll get married next year. And that, that is, is hilarious. That, wow. So it, it seems like your community is longing for freedom, yeah. and my community is longing for That's marriage. So <laughs> you know what else is really crazy in Morocco is that there's there's so many Jewish saints, right? And mm-hmm. so many like what we call a marabou, like a sacred space in which a Jewish saint is buried. And until today, even with like a very like diminishing um, small Jewish community, you have like the biggest numbers of people who like go seek blessings from Mm. these saints are Muslim. Like you have Muslim women who go to these Jewish saints asking for marriage, asking for, you know, fertility, all of these different blessings. And I think it's I mean, it's just so, so unique to witness those things until today. And, and there is there is a, a saint called Sidi Moshe or Sidi Moussa in uh, the middle of like a village called Eitz in which there was used to be a huge um, Jewish community in this beautiful valley. And women go on a constant basis asking for all of these blessings. And, you know, they just they don't even know that it's a Jewish saint. Yeah. They just go because that's what their parents and grandparents did. A blessing is a blessing. Exactly. No matter where from. Absolutely. Um, it's actually funny. It was Yom Hatzma'ud a couple of weeks back. And uh, we had a big party in Washington Square celebrating Israel. And I had Jewish stars all over my face. And I was painted. And I had a flag. And I went to Westside Market down um, by Washington Square Park to buy yeah. some coconut water. I was very dehydrated. And I walk in. And I have all these stars painting on my face like my Gen Davids. And the cashier barely spoke English definitely not from a Jewish background at least not for me and she just goes is today Jew day and I go yeah today's Jew day and she goes do we get blessings I'm like yeah we do she goes oh okay great I'm like all the blessings and I every was like, day is great... Jew day if you really want it was Jew day it was Jew day I'm like today is Jew day um that's but, awesome yeah no so I I, I love the superstitions question I, I really think like again it like yeah. pulls out um different things and I agree a blessing yeah, is a blessing totally. um and, and you told us a little bit about Mimuna, but what would you say is your favorite tradition? Being Ooh. everything that you are, what is your favorite holiday or what is your favorite tradition that comes with your I do cultures? love Mimuna. I'll tell you Mimuna. why because... Can um, you explain what Mimuna is? Yes. To all of our viewers, Mimuna is a Moroccan Jewish tradition in which the Muslim community also takes part. It's a huge part of the tradition is this sort of interfaith component. And um, during Mimuna, which happens at the end of Passover, it's a way to celebrate the end of Passover, Passover and like the return of leaven and leavened breads and pastries and sweets, which we love. Um, so basically during Mimuna, the uh, Muslim neighbors will come over to the Jewish homes, um, which are just kind of, you know, the doors are burst open for anyone to come and join in. And it's just big celebration of community and of you know your neighbors and of um of spirituality and tradition and it's an expression of joy and it's a way to like welcome spring and um and be back in community and a huge component or i would say like the most critical item <laughs> food item on the mimuna table are these crepes, these uh, pancakes called mukletas, which are like laddered with 
honey mm. and butter, like this mixture of honey and butter. Um, and they're like rolled and, and eaten by everybody. And uh, there's usually like a full on display of sweets and gluten and all kinds of beautiful they pastries and like um, dates with marzipan, which is very like Moroccan and Sephardic thing. Um, and just like a really colorful um, layout and spread. And what I love about Mimuna is that it's this gorgeous, joyful event with so much music and so much beauty and aesthetics, um, but it's also like fundamentally rooted in um, an incredible story about liberation. Um, and it is inspired by actually a Jewish saint called Lele Mimuna from the south of Morocco who like lived in the deserts and uh, played a key part in like helping emancipate these like black sort of, you know, slave West Africans who would be kind of taken to um, to North Africa and to Morocco um, to work for sort of these elite families. And Lele Mimuna apparently in sort of this myth or this legend of her story is told to have helped these uh, black men on their journey through the desert when they were like kind of collapsing because of the heat mm. and and all of these like harsh desert conditions. Um, and so there is this strong connection between Mimuna, the celebration, and the Passover story and the story for liberation and the responsibility for liberation and, and freedom towards others, uh, which I think is a huge Jewish value as well. And there is this correlation between Mimuna and the Gnawa spiritual trance music, which is, um, which is basically a genre of music that came out of the black community in North Africa. Um, and it's also a very deeply political event in Israel. Mm. So, like, it just kind of combines all of my interests in one place. Um, Mimuna became a national holiday in Israel um, in 1965 mm -hmm. um, because the Moroccan Mizrahi community is pretty huge in, in Israel. And um, it became also, <laughs> interestingly, where the sort of right-wing party uh, members, the Likudniks, and where, you know, people who are running for office would show up as a way to kind of um, signal that they care about the Mizrahi votes and the Mizrahi community, um, and as a way to basically mobilize voters to go out and vote for we them. We love a virtue signal. <laughs> yep. We, we love so that. It's really interesting because um, there is also this, like, super fascinating sociopolitical rift in Israel today about like how Mimuna should be celebrated and like whether people should be taking part in something that became so politicized mm. and um, that is kind of a manifestation of virtue signaling. Um, and so I like a good I like a good tradition that like has a lot of history and culture and feminism and social justice in it, but is also like politically juicy and divisive yeah. and has potential for reform. 
Hey, I feel like that sounds like everything I want to be. You know, I want to be right? a little bit controversial, politically juicy. I want right. to have deep meaning exactly. and celebration. And feminist. And yeah, and I'm always looking for reform. And, you know? Yeah, I'm always exa- looking to grow. Exactly. Uh, so we should all embody Mimuna. The spirit of Mimuna in 100%. Israel should be in all of us. 100%. Uh, and I but think I you that. do. It's fair to say that you are the representation of Lele Mimuna. And I also love how she's a female saint. Yeah. Which you don't see too, too many of. So oh, there's so many. Mimuna just became my favorite holiday. Yay, I'm not Moroccan, see? but I'm adopting it now. <laughs> I'm hoping our audience can also adopt it. <laughs> 100%. And now the last thing I want to um, end on is uh, your favorite word or saying that mm. is associated with your culture and tradition that might not quite have an English equivalent. Ooh, 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 ooh. I think I want to say two things. One in English and... One in Moroccan, but I have to think about the Moroccan one. Favorite word or saying? Hmm, I would say, wow, I really need to think about this. (laughs) Um, Hmm. We could start with the English and go from there. With the English, I would say multitude. multitude. I think, yeah, I just love that word. I think it's, it's like soft enough. Um, that it, you know, it, it shows that kind of complexity we've been mm-hmm. talking about, but in ways that are soft and like healing and beautiful and positive. Um, it's also, it's also from, uh, Walt Whitman's poem, uh, where he says that, you know, I, contradict myself very well let me be contradicting I contain I am very large I contain multitudes um, which has like a soft place in my heart because it was something that you know I was dating someone for Mm, a little bit (laughs) for a little bit and um, it when he told me that I think it was like a moment of soothing Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you navigate all these different communities and, and identities, it can be a lot. It's painful. I mean, I talk about it in very like idealistic, optimistic ways, but um, it's a lot of weight to carry um, and a lot of um, pain to also kind of navigate the world with. And so when, when I heard that, I was like, this is something I can get behind. I carry multitudes. I love that. Um, and a word... In Moroccan. Oh my God. Actually, you know what came to mind for me is a word in Hebrew that is also in Moroccan, Mm. which I discovered like through having a conversation with Israeli friends and they just go, and I was like, wait, what? Are you kidding me? I don't know this one. I was like, you have this word? And it's incredible because... In Moroccan, we say choroto boroto. Okay. Chachta bachta choroto boroto. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's I... like fascinating. But, well, what context do you use it in? What does it mean? So it means like a bunch of nonsense. It's okay. like, it's whatever. It's nonsense. Like, don't pay it any attention. And when I first heard my Israeli friends say that, I was like, wow. The, the connection between like Hebrew and Moroccan language is so much deeper than any of us actually understand. Mm-hmm. And like given how the word actually sounds, I suspect there's some like Portuguese or Iberian influence in the word. And so like there is just so much to uncover 
mm-hmm. about how deeply connected we are as people and as communities. There is so much syncretism that happened between our cultures over hundreds and thousands of years. And if we just are willing to listen a little bit more, we can discover some like extremely fascinating things about how deeply bonded and connected we are. I actually think that's the perfect point to end on. So thank you so much, Rama, for joining us today. This is Hyphenated. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Such a pleasure. And we'll see you next episode.